I'm excited that we get to continue on in the series, the Organic Faith series, that we started last week. And I think it's going to be a fun series for us to kind of really dig into and continue to lay the foundation that we've been laying as a campus over our first year. And so this series is we're kind of digging into what we believe and why we believe it, okay? What we believe, why we believe it, and the difference that it makes in our lives today. And so I think it'll be a fun series that will maybe be a little bit challenging to us, hopefully enlightening to us, and uh, will cause us to get to know God in a much, much deeper way. So what we've said, let me give you a little context to this if you, if you missed last week. What we said is there's a lot of people these days that are eating organically, right? They're looking at their food, they're looking at their diet, and they're saying, listen, a lot of this stuff that you buy off the shelves of the store is highly processed, all kinds of you know, additives and, and you know, processing stuff and contaminants, and maybe we need to try to get rid of as much of that as we can and live as naturally, consume as naturally uh, as we could possibly do the food and take in just what our body needs without all of the garbage, right? And we said, that's cool. Like, the lot, you know, a lot of people are doing that. It seems wise. It seems like it's a smart thing to do. But we took a step back and we said, have we ever thought about trying to go? So we talk about organic eating. A lot of people are doing that. Have we ever stepped back and said, maybe we need to go organic in our faith? Like, what would that look like? And that's a different thought. I realize that. But have you ever stepped back and thought about, like, what kind of diet you're on in your faith? You know, again, I I understand it's a weird thought. But what kind of food are we taking in to nourish our spiritual life, our spiritual development? What are we feasting on that's developing us spiritually, that's growing us spiritually? And we said that, you know, the, the, the world is full of lots of different contaminants, right? There's lots of different things that we can consume that affects us spiritually that's contaminated and filled with additives. And we said, like, what are we taking in? Are we taking in things that are filled with contaminants and additives, or are they things that are pure and natural and uncontaminated? And we said, just like when you go to the store and you get grocery, you get some, you know, fruits and vegetables, we wash them, right? Because it's got dirt on them. We want to kind of wash the dirt on them. Like, do we step back and do we wash, do we wash the different ideas and opinions and perspectives that we hear that, that is affecting us spiritually before we accept it as true and before we incorporate it into our life? And we said we're offered all kinds of stuff as consumers, right? You and I. There's all kinds of ideas that people are offering us to consume. My question is, is what we're consuming, is what is shaping our worldview, our life philosophy, our faith, is it pure and natural and contaminant-free? Is it organic? Or is it riddled with deceptive processing and additives and contaminants? Like That's the question that we're kind of digging into with us. And so he said, in the series, we want to look at what we believe. We want to look at, at our faith, our organic faith. And a lot of people will use the word uh, theology, right? Our theology. All theology means theology is just our understanding of God and God's relation to the world, our understanding of who God is and his relation to the world. That's what our theology is. And so he said, just as the, uh, with food, there's certain parameters, there's certain requirements on food to make it organic, For us as Christians, there's really one requirement to make our faith organic, and that's that its foundation is the Bible. For our faith to be organic, for it to be pure and natural and contaminant-free, it's got to be based on the Bible. And so we said last week, we said, 
we actually believe this is true, right? I think it's one of the most important things about us as a church. We actually believe that this is God's words to us. And as God's words to us, they're trustworthy and they're true and they're dependable for us to build our life on, to build our organic faith on. And so that's actually what we're going to dig into tonight. We're going to talk about the Bible because this is really the foundational discussion to everything that we're going to talk about over these next seven weeks. If we get uh, our, our view of the Bible out of whack at the beginning, it's going to affect all the rest of our theology. So tonight's a really important night. Before I dig into that, I want to remind you of this too. One of the things that we talked about last week, we said, listen, as we study theology, as we study this stuff and dig into it, it's not just about us, Right? We're not just learning these things so that we grow, but we're learning these things so that we could also share it with other people. And we looked at a verse, a passage last week from 1 Timothy, and we said, Man, it would, this is a great passage to sort of be the context of our discussion over these next seven weeks. And this is what it is. So Paul's writing to Timothy. He says, Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine. Think theology, think faith, what you believe about God and his relation to the world. Watch your life and your doctrine closely persevere in them, because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Timothy, watch your life and what you believe closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. And we said, in a nutshell, the way that I live and what I believe matters. It has an effect on other people, especially the people that we love in our lives. So chew on this. Think about this. You and I have the power in what we believe and in how we live to affect other people's eternities forever. Like, just let that hit you for a second, the responsibility of that, the privilege of that. You and I, by how we live and what we believe, have the capacity, have the power to affect other people, especially those that we love, their eternities forever and ever and ever. And so as we dig into this tonight, and as we dig into this series, think this is not just for me. Like, I hope, I hope we all learn together tonight. Like, I hope you walk out of here and you go, boy, I, my understanding of the Bible is now clearer and on more solid foundation than it's ever been. I hope that. But also think, how can I use this to make an impression on other people? to influence other people and help them understand what I feel like I'm beginning to understand. Make sense? So we're not just learning for ourselves, we're learning for others as well. So with all that in mind, I want to take the rest of our time, and I really want to just jump in, and I want to answer three questions for us tonight, okay? It's kind of the skeleton of our discussion tonight. Three questions. First question is, what do we believe about the Bible? It's important for us to know, right? And I just, want to, I just want to share with you, like, this is what we believe as Grace Church about the Bible. So what do we believe about the Bible? Second question, why do we believe that about the Bible? Like, why? That's a, that's a really important question. I don't want you, remember we said last week, we said, we don't check our brains at the door. God gave us a brain. God gave us reason and logic. We should use it, right? So we need, we need to understand why we believe what we believe. And then third question, so what? What difference does it make in our lives? It only has impact if it makes a difference with us. It doesn't just stay up here, but it goes here, right? It's fleshed out in our lives. So so what? How do we apply this to our daily lives? And let me give you a caveat. So I said already, tonight is like foundational. It's really important for the rest of our series. If we get this wrong tonight, we mess everything else up in our theology. So tonight's really important. But let me say this. I won't be able to answer all the questions that you have. Like, you may have walked in here and have certain questions about the Bible. I won't be able to answer all the questions that you have. 35 minutes is not enough time, I promise you. Um, I may actually raise questions that you didn't know that you had about the Bible. 
okay? And that's okay, because let me tell you this. There's so much that could be said. Like, I really struggled this week. Like, man, I have so much I want to talk about. What do I share? Like, I, it's, it's hard to kind of funnel it all down. But listen to this. There is so much stuff written out there by people that have spent their entire lives digging into the Bible, studying it, and understand it and know it far better than me or you combined. Their entire lives, and they write about it. And the conclusions that they come up with, the conclusions that they come to, are the exact conclusions that I'm going to share with you today. Okay? They look at the Bible and they go, this is the most important document, the most important book ever created. Okay? And they believe that it's true. And so tonight, if you walk out of here and you go, man, there's just some questions that I still have. Talk to me. There's so many good resources that will be able to help you. Okay? There's answers to the questions that you have. Okay? Make sense? So I want to dig into this tonight. Let's, let's look at the first question. What do we believe about the Bible? You know, it's funny. I had, it's funny what you remember when you're a kid from, from your childhood. Growing up, so my parents were both teachers. They're both teachers in, in Barberton. And so they would leave, as teachers, they would leave early in the morning. And so we had um, uh, neighbors that would come, friends of ours and their mom that would come to our house and they would help get us on the bus in the morning. And so I remember one morning, they made the best, best uh, Scrambled eggs, incredible, Margaret, incredible. So anyway, I remember one morning she made scrambled eggs, and I think I was buttering the toast with a knife, and I had the knife, and I set it down, not even thinking about it. Sometime in the morning, my mom or dad, somebody was reading the Bible at the kitchen table, and I set the knife down on the Bible, and you would have thought that I murdered somebody. Like, she's like, what are you doing? You set a knife on the Bible. I was like, I didn't, I didn't know what I did, you know? I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, it's a serious impression on my life. But to her, the Bible was complete. It was different than anything else. There was nothing else that was more important, more holy, more substantial to her. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with putting a knife on the Bible. But to her, this book was so unique, so special, that it was like really offensive to her. Listen, one of the first things that we believe about the Bible is it is completely unique. It is unlike anything else in the history of the world. There is no other book like the Bible. I really like how there's a guy, speaking of books and, and good resources for you if you have continued questions, there's a guy named Josh McDowell. He's written tons and tons of stuff. But I really love what he says about the uniqueness of the Bible. This is what he says. It's so cool. He says, here's a book written over a uh, 1,500-year span written over 40 generations, written by more than 40 authors from every walk of life, including kings and peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, scholars, etc. Written in different places, the wilderness, a dungeon, on a hillside, in a palace, inside prison walls, while traveling on an island and in the rigors of a military campaign. It's written at different times, times of war, times of peace. It's written during different moods, some writing at the heights of joy, others writing at the depths of sorrow and despair. It's written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It's written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And finally, its subject matter includes hundreds of controversial topics. If you haven't read the Bible, there's lots of controversial topics in the Bible. Yet biblical authors spoke with harmony and continuity from Genesis, the first book in the Bible, to Revelation. 
He says this. He says, there's one unfolding story in all the Bible. There's one unfolding story, God's redemption of man. What that means is that all of the Bible is centered on and pointing to what God would do in sending Jesus to give us forgiveness, to give us peace, to make us right with God. He said, the Bible is not like one book. We don't look at it like a a book like any other book. It's unique. It's different. And we said, it's actually a library of books filled with different kinds of literature, ranging from beautiful poetry to sermons and music, historical accounts, parables, prophecies, stories, love letters, correspondence between certain people and churches. It survived fire, it survived criticism, and many attempts to eradicate it totally. There's been numerous attempts to to burn it, to ban it, and to eliminate eliminate it altogether, and yet all of them have failed. The Bible is by far the most circulated book all around the world in the last 2,000 years, ever, right? And it's translated at at least parts of it into over 1,700 different languages. This library of books has been the subject of more abuse, more perversion, more destructive criticism, and pure hate than any other book in existence. And yet it continues to stand the test of time. It's unique. I mean, it's just, the Bible's just different than any other book ever, ever, right? That's the first thing that we believe about the Bible. It is unique. Second thing that we believe about the Bible is it's authoritative. It has authority in our lives. And when I say authoritative, I want you to think of two words. Ready? Inspiration and inerrancy. Inspiration, inerrancy. What does that mean? What's, what's inspiration? Millard Erickson says this. I, this, is a good, this is helpful for me in understanding. He says, by inspiration of Scripture, we mean that supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit on the Scripture writers, which rendered their writings an accurate record of the revelation of which resulted in what they actually wrote being the Word of God. What does that mean? Well, it means that we believe that the words that we have in the Bible are God-breathed. We believe that they're the very words of God And as he inspired and superintended exactly what he wanted to say, he used these writers, these guys that he chose, he used their personalities, they used their own words, but God superintended through them, inspired through them, that as they wrote, it was exactly what he desired be written. That's what inspiration means. And so in 2 Peter 1, it says, above all, so this is kind of just showing us that. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what inspiration is. Now, what does that mean? Like, what does that look like? I don't know. I can't explain that. Like, how does God speak to somebody so clearly and, and have them write exactly what he wants it to say using their own personality, using their own words. Like, what would that have been like? I don't know. I can't explain it. But it's true. And so as every, every, the very words of God 
they have authority in our lives, right? If this is God's word, and I believe that God is powerful and strong, and I'm, he's worthy of my worship, if these are his words, then they should have authority in our lives, right? So 2 Timothy 3, it says this. It says, all scripture is God-breathed. That's that word inspired. It's all God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's useful to us. It's authoritative in our lives, right? Because it's the very word of God. That's inspiration. God breathed. He superintended exactly what he wanted to say through human authors. That's inspiration. Second thing is inerrancy. What does inerrant mean? What does it mean for the Bible to be inerrant? Well, it means that the text of the Bible, the text that God gave us in the original manuscripts is without error and does not affirm anything contrary to fact. That's what it means. In the original manuscripts, the text that God gave, the text that were written down, affirm nothing contrary to fact, anything untrue. In short, if it's God's word and God cannot lie, then the Bible's inerrant. So that you see how these things go together. If we, if we think it's inspired by God, like this is God's word, well, God doesn't lie. God doesn't say things that aren't true. Therefore, it must be inerrant. So we believe that the Bible is God's words to us, and as his words... If they were written down originally, they're completely free of error, okay? So that begs a question. Maybe you're thinking this in your head. Okay, if we're talking about the original manuscripts, the original writings are completely free of error, how many of those we got? These things are pretty old, right? I mean, this stuff was written a long time ago. How many of the original writings do we have? None. None. Well, hold on, we don't have any of them. How could I trust that what we have today is actually what the original said, you know? Like, wouldn't it have been changed as it's, as it's copied over and over and over again, and wouldn't people make mistakes? Well, that's a good question. I'm going to come back to that when we talk about the why. It's a great question. There's great reason to believe that what we have here today is within 99 point something percent exactly what was originally written. Okay, I'll come back to that one. But what we believe about the Bible is that it has authority in our lives because it's the inspired word of God that's also the inerrant word of God. Okay, so it's unique, it's uh, authoritative. Third thing, it's necessary. It's necessary. See, see if you agree with this. So here's, here's what I believe. Here's what many people believe. We can look at ourselves, our bodies, right? Our mind, our conscience, our, our uh, innate understanding of right and wrong, morality, our need for relationships, our inherent need to worship someone or something greater than us, and step back and go, man, it seems like the only explanation is that there must be a God. There must be like a designer. There must be someone who created that. Like the chances of all of this working together the way that it is just by chance seems like a stretch. And then you look out at the world and you see like the vastness of the universe and how things just kind of happen. Things continue. Planets don't just run into each other, right? They revolve. You see gravity. You look at the minutia of the most microscopic things and how it all works together. And you step back and you go, it must be a guy. I mean, it must be somebody who made it this way, right? Like it couldn't, it couldn't just be chance, like a lot of time and chance, and bam, here we go. The most natural understanding is that we could look at creation and we could go, yeah, there's probably a God. There must be a God. 
And the Bible actually talks about that. Romans chapter 1 talks about that. It says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what's been made, so that people are without excuse. So we look at the world and we go, man, there's, there must be a God. But here's the thing. That's not enough for us to be made right with that God, Right? It's not enough to just believe in God. The Bible actually says even the demons believe in God, right? But for us to be made right with God, there's got to be more. There's got to be a deeper understanding. For us to be made right with God, to be forgiven, to receive grace, to be worthy of being with a perfect, holy God forever, I need the truth of God's plan of redemption through Jesus Christ, right? Where's that found? Right here. Right here. Wayne Grudem says this. He says, the necessity of Scripture, it's necessary. The necessity of Scripture means that the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel, for maintaining spiritual life, and for knowing God's will. But it's not necessary for knowing that God exists or knowing something about God's character or moral laws. But we need it to know his plan. We need it to know how to be made right with him, right? John 3, 16, you've probably heard this verse before. It says, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So it's necessary, Right? In order for me to understand who Jesus is and what God has done in sending his son to live and die for us, I need this. I need the Bible, right? It's necessary for us. So we believe that the Bible, God's redemptive plan for all of human history is necessary. So that's the third thing. So he says it's unique, it's authoritative, it's necessary. Here's the fourth thing, last one. Then we're going to talk about why I believe these things, why we believe these things. It's sufficient. That's the fourth thing. It's sufficient. The Bible is all we need for life and godliness. Think about that for a second. The Bible is it. It's all we need for life and for godliness. It's all that we need to know. Grudem says it this way. He says, The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contained all the words of God that he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history and that it now contains all the words of God that we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. Second Timothy, I'm sorry, Second Peter 1 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a, for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. I really believe this. Do we have everything that we need to understand what God has done to understand who God is, what's important to him, what's not important to him, to live our lives the way that he calls us to live. Do we have everything we need? I think so. Do I want more? Yeah, at times. I got questions, right? Like I got questions that I would love to have answers to, but I don't need to have those answers. Not to trust him and live the way that he desires us to live, right? So, so those are four things. There's lots of other stuff too. But those are the four main things that we believe about the Bible. It's unique. It's authoritative in our life. It's, it's the inspired word of God, the inerrant word of God. 
It's necessary for us. In order for me to understand what God has done, I need that. I need that to understand who Jesus is. And it's sufficient. It's all I need. It's what he said I need, and it's all that I need in this life. So that's some of the stuff that we believe. That's, that's the what in regards to the Bible. How about our second question? Why? Why do we believe those things about the Bible? How do I know? How do I know that I could trust that the Bible is reliable? You said we don't have any of the original copies of these manuscripts. We don't have any of the, the original things that, that Peter wrote down, that Matthew wrote down, right? We don't have any of the originals. How do I know that what we have is actually accurate to what they wrote? Like, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be like a, a key? Like, you ever made a copy of a key? You get a, you get a master key, right? Works in the lock perfectly. You make a copy of that. Usually, if you've got a good guy making a copy, the copy works. If you make a copy from a copy, many times it doesn't work. If you make a copy from a copy from a copy from a copy, it never works in the lock. It changes because it's not based on the original. How do I know that what we have is based on the original? How do I know it's actually accurate? to what the original writing said. Or maybe it's like the telephone game. Remember when you're a kid and you play a telephone game and you sit in a circle and somebody whispers something to the person next to them and then by the time it goes, it's whispered all the way around the circle. By the time it comes back to you, it's something completely different. How do I know that that's not, ha- that, that's not what happened with the Bible? How do I know that I can trust this? And, and then how do I know that what was written down is actually true? How do I know that people, it's not just some big conspiracy and they're writing these things to be, po- to be powerful, how do I know I can trust that? And how do I know that the books that are in the Bible are actually the ones that God wants to be in the Bible? How do I know it's not another big conspiracy, you know? Like the church did it. The church decided what books were in there because it made the church look best. I want to talk about some of these things. I want to be able to talk about all of them, but I want to talk about some of these things. I want to talk about why we believe the things that we do. And I want to share with you maybe just some things that personally in my own life help me to be able to trust that the Bible is the word of God and what's in it is actually true. Because I have to make this decision too, right? Like we're no different. I'm, I'm, I'm standing up here as pastor, but I had to make the decision in my life. Like as I investigate this, as I dig into this, do I believe it's actually true? Do I believe it's actually God's words, right? So I want to share with you just a few things that have really helped me to be able to understand So one of the the really important reasons to trust the Bible, that what we have here, that what's translated here is actually very, very accurate to the original, is the timeline, okay? And here's what I mean by that. Generally, the rule of thumb is that the closer the, the copies of these ancient texts are to the original, the greater likelihood that they're accurate, right? So if you have the original written here, the closer the copy is that we have to the original, the more likelihood that it's more accurate. The further away from the original, maybe the less likelihood that it's accurate, right? So I want to look at this. If we focus just on the New Testament for our purposes tonight, how close to the originals in date are the oldest copies that we have? Okay, I want to look at this. So let's compare it. Maybe this is a good way to do it. Let's compare it to some of the other ancient literature that we have and that we esteem and that we accept is true. Okay? So you guys have probably heard of Plato, right? Not the stuff that kids play with, but the philosopher, the Greek philosopher, Plato. Plato lived uh, and wrote between 427 and 347 BC. Okay? Long, long time ago. The stuff that he wrote, we take and we go, this guy was brilliant, right? Like so insightful, so brilliant, incredible philosopher. 
The oldest copy, the earliest copy of anything that we have that he wrote was from 900 AD. Okay? So he wrote 427 to 347 BC, the oldest copy, 900 AD. So it's about 1,200 years old, the oldest copy that we have after uh, he wrote. Okay? Aristotle, you probably heard of him. He was Plato's protege. He lived just after him, and he wrote incredible things. He wrote between 384 and 322 BC. The earliest copy of anything that he wrote that we have is from 1100 AD. And so that's about 1,400 years, 1,400 years between the original and the earliest copy that we have. Sophocles, he was a Greek playwright, lived right around the same time. He wrote between 496 and 406 BC, the earliest copy of anything that we have from him, 1,000 AD. So again, about 1,400 years. Pliny the Younger, that's a great name. If we have another kid, I'm going to name him Pliny. It's just a no, I won't. Pliny the Younger, he was a lawyer uh, a long time ago that wrote historical letters that we, that we take that help us understand history. He wrote between 61 and 113 AD. The earliest copy of anything that we have from him is 850 AD. So it's about 750 years. So we're getting a little bit closer, right? 750 years between the original and the earliest copy that we have. Caesar and the Gallic Wars. This is kind of the, the revered history of Caesar and his military campaigns. He wrote between 1,000 and 44 B.C., the earliest copy we have, 900 A.D., so it's about 950 to 1,000 years, okay? So, yep, so we have a little bit of context. These are things that we go, man, what we have is very, very accurate to what was originally written, okay? New Testament, written 40 to 100 A.D., Okay? The earliest copy of a fragment, we don't have like an entire New Testament or even an entire book, but the earliest copy of part of the New Testament we have, 114 AD. So written between 40 and 100 AD, the earliest part of of the New Testament we have, 114 AD. The uh, earliest book, complete book we have in the New Testament, 200 AD. The earliest complete New Testament that we have, 325 AD. Okay? So what does that mean? It means that there's a time span of 50 years that we have for part of the New Testament and 225 years for the entire thing. Comparatively, guys, that's so close. It's so close. One, one of the other things that's really important for us in trying to understand if, if what we have here today is very accurate to the original is the quantity of these ancient texts, right? So the, the perspective is, the understanding is, the more of them that you have, the more likely they're going to be accurate. Because if there's little errors here and there, and I got a bunch of them, I can go, okay, there's a, clearly this is an error because these other seven ones say it this way. This one says it a little differently, right? So the quantity of them is really, really significant as well. Well, so let me go back through really quickly. Plato, we have seven ancient copies. Aristotle, 49 ancient copies. Sophocles, 193 ancient copies. Pliny the Younger, seven ancient copies. Caesar and the Gallic Wars, 10 ancient copies. The one that we have the second most to beyond the New Testament is Homer's Iliad. It was written, there was about 400 years between the, when he actually wrote it and the, cop, the earliest copy that we have, okay? And there's 643 ancient copies. That's a lot. So we can look at those and we can go, man, we know exactly what Homer said, okay? Not Homer Simpson. That's what I think of when I think of Homer. Different Homer, right? We know exactly what he said. Here's the New Testament. Ready? 5,366 of the most ancient texts. Really, really old ones. 
24,633 total ancient texts. Guys, what that means is anything that's in question, it's been copied so many times from the original, so many times that we go, I know what it means. Like they know, I don't know. They know what it means. Whenever there's a deviation from it, there's thousands of other copies that have it right. And it's very, very obvious. Is this making sense? So the number of copies that we have and the proximity of those copies to the original gives us great, great, great confidence that what we have in our hands today is very much what was originally written. Now, let me, let me ask another question. So if we have a lot of confidence that what we have is the same as the original, how do I know it's true? How do I know it's true? Okay, maybe it's what they were, was originally written down. How do I know it's true? Well, here's a few things that have really helped me. The right, and I talked a little bit about this, I think last week or the week before. The writers wrote what they saw, what they personally saw and experienced. They wrote these things down when there were still people alive that could corroborate what they wrote or invalidate what they wrote, right? I mean, these guys, they wrote these things down that we have in here today that they personally went through. They personally went through it. And they wrote immediately. They wrote very quickly, relatively speaking, after they went through these things. And then they were circulated all around. And so they were in the hands of other people that were there, right? And they could say, no, 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 it didn't happen that way. Or they could say, yeah, it happened that way. I was there. I saw what Jesus did, right? 1 John 3 says this, it says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it and testified to it. We proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We're there. We saw it. We wrote it down. And we want you to experience what we've experienced. Second Peter 1. For we didn't follow uh, cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. We were eyewitnesses to his majesty. See, they wrote this stuff when there are people that were alive that could say, yeah, it didn't happen. Oh, yeah, it did happen, right? That's really big. Second thing, that really helped me in my understanding and my trust that this is God's word. Second thing, the writers died believing what they wrote. In fact, many of them died because of what they wrote, right? And so you have 12 original uh, apostles, disciples, right? And you have 12 of them. 10 of them died for what they wrote down. They died for what they believed. One of them, Judas, killed himself because he betrayed Jesus. He killed himself before he had a chance to die for what he believed. The other one, John, that didn't die for what he believed, they tried to kill him. They boiled him in oil. Somehow he survived. They exiled him to an island, and he continued to write these things, right? Listen, people don't die for no reason, for little things. People don't die for lies, right? These men died for what they believed. They believed exactly the things that they wrote. That's the second thing. That was a huge thing for me. Here's the third thing. The writings of the Bible keep getting verified, more and more verified through new discoveries in archaeology and history, like over and over and over again. One of the things, I was talking to somebody between services. This is interesting, and, and I didn't think of this, but, I, but he's right. It's true. 
The Bible is different. So we said it's unique, right? It's different than any other faith book. Like think of any other religion that has a faith book. It's different than those because it's written in a very specific context. There's a historicity going on all around it. It's different than somebody um, writing sayings of Mohammed, right? Sayings of, you know, whoever. It's different than that. There's historical things that are part of this book that you could either say, this is real and this is true. We have evidence of this or we don't. Okay. That's why the Bible has been criticized over and over and over again. But what people are finding out, we see so, so much is that they make these new discoveries that actually corroborate what's in there. So, so, for example, I'll give you some examples. So, Josephus, maybe some of you have heard of the guy Josephus. Josephus was a first century Jewish historian. So, he was not a Christian. He never became a Christian. He never became a Christ follower. But he lived during the time of Jesus. And he actually wrote a little bit about Jesus. And he wrote about some of the other things going on that we, that we read about in the Bible. And so, his writings that are, they're not biblical writings, he wasn't a Christian his writings actually validate and verify much of what's in our New Testament. It's really interesting. Here's another thing. I was reading uh, uh, online uh, Christianity Today. It's a, great, it's, it's a great publication if you have some questions on the Bible and that sort of thing. I was reading about the top 10 archaeological discoveries of 2015, 2014, 2013. It's just interesting to see. And one of those, really, a lot of really interesting stuff. One of the things that I just, I'll just share one thing with you. They're, they're doing some excavations in Jerusalem on an empty building, okay? They're doing excavations on it. And they knew that there was an old Ottoman Turkish prison that was built, that was under it, right? And what they discovered is under that was Herod's palace, Herod was somebody that the Bible talks about. It's actually, Herod's palace is actually where the trial of Jesus took place. And they didn't know that before. They're like, we, we have no, under, no uh, evidence that this even existed. Now there's evidence that it existed. Because what happens is, back then, you know, things were built, stone, right? Things were built, and then things were demolished, and there was war and all that stuff, and then rubble, and then they built something else on it, and it's demolished, built something else on it. And so layers down, they find this. It's amazing, right? That's just one thing. Every year they find more and more stuff that corroborates what's in there. Here's another thing. It's absolutely fascinating. You've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Have you guys heard of those? Dead Sea Scrolls are the most significant archaeological find of our lifetime, of the 20th century, 21st century. Do you know, do you know kind of the, the story behind them? It's really interesting. It's funny, actually. So there you have these two shepherd boys, these two Bedouin shepherd boys, and they're just kind of screwing around, me and boys, and they're throwing rocks in a cave, okay? And they, um, one boy throws a rock in a cave, and he hits something that breaks. And so they're like, whoa, what is that, right? And then they go home, and they, it's dark in the cave, right? They go home. The next day, the cousin, so they're actually cousins, the one cousin, not to get it through it, but the other kid, goes back, and he goes into the cave. He ventures into the cave, and he finds these three super ancient scrolls, okay? And he takes them out, and he takes them to somewhere in Jerusalem, some dealer, and he, and he says, you know, I want to sell these to you. What, what will you give me for these? These are the gold. And they don't think it's really worth anything. But they give him, so they give them $30, 30 U.S. dollars, the equivalent of 30 U.S. dollars. And then eventually, of course, they find out that these are actually invaluable. And so they go back into the cave. Over the years, they go back in the cave. They find a total of 941 scrolls in that cave. And they range in time period between 250 B.C. to 68 A.D. 
really, really old. And here's the thing. Here's the most fascinating thing about it. Up to that time, so that was in the 1940s, actually, when they found those. Up to that time, the oldest ancient biblical manuscript that we had, and some of these were biblical, some of them weren't. There were scrolls of Isaiah, Psalms in there that were like really, really well-preserved, okay? The oldest ones that we had at that point uh, were about 1,000 AD, somewhere around in there. These are 1,000 years earlier than the oldest ones that we had at that time. And so you can imagine what some of the, the skeptics, some of the liberal theologians were saying. Yeah, when we, when we actually get our hands on these, we'll find out just how different they are, right? It'll be just like that telephone game. And we're going to see that what Psalms was actually written as, this is actually nothing like what we have in our Bibles today. What they found out is that they were strikingly the same, amazingly the same. Like the differences were the equivalent of like a misplaced dotted I or cross T. Absolutely amazing, like life-changing. And what they actually did, you know, there's some of the older manuscripts that we used to have, there are some things that were, when we translate them, we're like, I don't understand what that means. These things helped us understand what some of the difficulties that we had previously. So it's like this incredible find. I share that with you guys to just say over and over and over again, there's these discoveries that just validate what the Bible talks about is true. You following me? It's amazing. So what about the apparent errors in the Bible? You ever heard somebody say that? The Bible's got all kinds of errors, all kinds of contradictions in the Bible. You ever hear that? I've heard that lots of times by people. Here's a good first question to ask when somebody says, well, what about the errors in the Bible? Here's the first question to ask. Um, which ones are you talking about? Because many times what happens is somebody hears somebody else go, man, there's all kinds of errors in the Bible. There's all kinds of inconsistencies. And they just accept that it's true. This is kind of what we're talking about with our organic faith, like washing the ideas that, that we get. So they just kind of accept that it's true. So the first, good first question is to say, well, like, t- just tell me which ones you're talking about. And then let's flip through them, right? Here's the thing. There are no apparent errors, okay? No apparent errors in any sort of main doctrines in the Bible, I'm going to argue here in a second that there's no errors, period, okay? But there's no apparent errors. There's nothing even questionable in any sort of main doctrines in Scripture, anything of theological significance. It's important for us to understand. Most of the apparent errors can be explained just through critical thinking, like just trying to put yourself in that situation and what the authors are actually saying and what they're not saying. Many of them can be understood just by understanding people's perspectives that they write from. Let me give you an example. And this, this actually answers a ton in, of, of apparent errors in the Bible. So in Matthew chapter 8 and Mark chapter 5, they tell basically the same story, okay? So Jesus is going, he's in these tombs, and there's this demon-possessed guy in the tombs, okay? And Jesus casts out the demons, and he casts them into a herd of pigs. You guys ever heard this story? And the pigs go crazy, and they run off a cliff and die, okay? So in Matthew, it says that there's two demon-possessed men that Jesus does this with. In Mark, it says that there's one demon-possessed man that, that he does this with. And so you step back and go, what? Contradiction. It's got to be the same story, right? Like Jesus would cast demons into two herds of pigs and run off a cliff. Got to be the same story, right? Like how do we explain that? Well, it's not that difficult for us to explain it because we talk this way today. 
See, if, you, if you're watching TV and the president of the United States, you're watching video and the president of the United States and the vice president and maybe, you know, a, another official get off a plane and they're walking you know, off Air Force One and you hear the newscaster and they say, the president landed in Washington, D.C. today for a summit that he's going to have with the world leader. They didn't mention anything about the vice president or the rest of his cabinet or anybody else that walked off the plane. All they said was the president. Are they lying? No, newscaster's not lying, right? They're just telling the story from their perspective. We do this all the time, too. We had a party last night for Luke's, uh, my son's basketball team. And uh, I can say, Corey and AJ were over at our house last night for a party. It was really a lot of fun. It was really cool to get to know them a little bit. There are actually lots of other people at our party as well. I didn't mention them. Does that mean I'm lying? No, we do this all the time, right? Like when we just think about some of these passages critically and understand what they say and what they don't say and understand perspective, it answers, adequately answers a lot of these questions that we might have. Others can be explained when, when you actually look into the original languages. Sometimes when things are translated excuse me, into English in our Bibles, he, it, it, there's just some uh, uh, lack of clarity there. And when you actually go into the original languages, it makes more sense. Here, here's something, so Wayne Grudem, the guy that I've quoted a few times, here's something that he wrote that's really helpful to me. It gives me a lot of confidence. So this is a guy that has studied the Bible like all his adult life, incredibly wise, incredibly in-depth. This is what he writes. He says, while we must allow the possibility of being unable to solve a particular problem, it should also be stated that there are many evangelical Bible scholars today who will say that they do not presently know of any problem text for which there's no satisfactory solution. It is possible, of course, that some such text could be called to their attention in the future, but during the past 15 years or so of controversy over biblical inerrancy, no such unsolved, quote-unquote, unsolved text has been brought to their attention. He goes on, he says, Moreover, for these hundreds of years, highly competent biblical scholars have read and studied those problem texts and have still found no difficulty holding to inerrancy. This should give us confidence that the solutions to these problems are available and that belief in inerrancy is entirely consistent with a lifetime of detailed attention to the scriptures. That's significant to me, you know? Like these men and women who have spent their entire life digging into this, looking at every potential error, they come out and they go, no, there's no errors. Like I, I can believe that with good conscience as I have studied it with as much depth as possible, which is the same belief, by the way, the consistent belief of the church over the last 2,000 years. That gives me a lot of confidence. So those are just a few of the reasons for us, like why we believe what we believe about the Bible. There's so much more, guys. If you want more, talk to me. I can uh, point you to the right resources for that. But let's go on, because I, I know I'm running late here. I need to wrap up. I told you, I had a lot to share tonight. Sorry. Why? Or I'm, I'm sorry. So what? Right? So what? Like, what do we do with this? What, what difference does all this make in our lives today? Well, guys, listen. If all of this is true, like all that we've talked about, if it's true, then the Bible is the key to life. Right? The Bible is the key to life. This life and the life to come. Why? Because the Bible tells me about Jesus. It's the key to life. Like, if I believe this is true, and this is the way to forgiveness, this is the way to understand who Jesus is, there's nothing more important for us, right? Jesus says, 
He's talking to some people that weren't believing in him, weren't trusting. And he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. He says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Like what we have here is God's unfolding of his redemptive plan from the beginning of history today. And it all points to and is centered on Jesus. And it's for all of us, right? It's for all of us. If we want to know God, the Bible is what we need. This is what God says is, is what, what we need to be, have a clear understanding of who he is. And he says, this is sufficient. This is enough for you. It's for every one of us. If we want to know who God is, we have to have that. And we said last week, it's filled with wisdom, right? I, I don't know about you, but I want to be wise. I want to know the right thing to do, and I want to do it in my life. The Bible is filled with wisdom, if we just pick it up and read it and apply it to our lives, we would become wiser people. You know what else it is? It's our weapon against the enemy, against Satan. We've got an enemy that the Bible talks about who likes to whisper lies to us, right? Whispers lies to our heart, and it's easy to begin to believe those lies. The Bible, here's what it says in Ephesians six seventeen. Incredible passage about kind of this spiritual warfare going on. It says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God, God's words, God's promises are our weapons. When the enemy's whispering lies in our ears, we have God's promises to defend, to hold ourselves with, right? And here's the last thing it's the only foundation that's worthy of building our life on. Jesus said this. He said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I'll show you what they're like. They're like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but it could not shake it because it was built well. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built his house on the ground without its foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. There's no other foundation in our lives, no, no other thing worthy of being the foundation that we build our lives on. And guys, I tell you this, I'll end with this. In my own life, you know, I, when I was 20 years old is when things made sense to me. Up to that time, I, my, I went to church. My parents took me to church. I, I learned about God. I very seldom read this, very seldom. When I did, take it or leave it. But when I made the decision, after studying and wrestling with all of this and praying, when I made the decision to actually believe that it was true, it had a different sort of power in my life, and it had a different sort of priority. I actually remember, I, got, I was just looking at the date in there. My, my parents gave me that Bible in 1996, shortly after I became a Christian, 1996. And I remember reading it for the first time, on, like on my own, vaguely remembering some of these stories that I learned as a child, reading it going, oh my gosh, this stuff is true. Like this, this actually happened. It's not child fables and fantasies and stories this is real. This is history. These are things that God did and he wants to do in my life today. 
So I want to challenge you guys. Like, I don't know where you're at in your understanding. Like, even as you sit here tonight, you may be going, I, I don't know. I'm here because I'm interested, but I don't know if I believe this or not. Talk to God about it. If you have doubts, if you have questions, there are great resources that we could point you to. But you got to do the work. you got to read. you got to dig in. I pray that in your life, the Bible would be the foundation that you build it on. And when you trust that it's true, when you trust that it's God's inspired words to us, it will change you. It will change everything about you, just as God is changing you.